Amen. If you have your Bible this morning, I want to invite you to turn with me to the book of Daniel, the Old Testament book of Daniel, chapter one. If you're using one of the black Bibles in the rack in front of you, it's page 782. Uh, The Bible says that uh, we are strangers and aliens in in this world, and that has never been more true uh, than it is today. The world absolutely stands opposed to Christ. Uh, The standards of Christ, the purpose of Christ, the teachings of Christ have all been discarded uh, for a new worldview and a new ethic. Uh, We live in a different kind of world. We live in a world where what the world calls entertainment, the Bible very often calls sin. Uh, We live in a world where what the world often calls normal, the Bible calls a perversion. Uh, We live in a world where uh, the, the, the marriage is no longer the foundation of, of life and of American life and of, of, of the institutions that we have. Uh, but today marriage has been completely redefined, if not completely discarded. Uh, we live in a world where issues such as gender uh, that were uh, pretty straightforward a few years ago are very confusing and complex Uh, We live in a world where the Bible is scoffed at and dismissed as a guide for wise living. So how in the world can we live in this world? How can we uh, raise children in this world? How can we have a godly marriage in a world that stands so opposed to Christ? How How can we safeguard our spiritual roots and bring honor to God when we live in a culture that absolutely stands against everything that we believe. I uh, sometimes uh, read articles in the newspaper, see things on the news, and, and I see how people think, and it is so different than the way I think and the, and the way we think. It, it's not e- even anymore a different point of view. It, it's almost as if you know, what I believe is up, some people believe is down. We live in a world that is so, so different. And so how do we live in this world? I really believe that that's going to be one of the most important questions that we will have to answer as a church in the next five years. I I think in America, one of the biggest issues in Christianity is going to be just this. How do we live? How do we live out our faith in a world that stands opposed to Christ? Well, the good news is we're not the first people to face this dilemma. If we go to Daniel chapter one, what we discover is that there were some men here who had been transplanted from their Hebrew culture, uh, that had been transplanted from, from really from one world. They, they lived in this country and through the exile, they ended up in another country, in a Babylonian country. And, and this new world that they lived in was diametrically opposed to everything that they had heard of. Everything that they counted as right, the new, the new world counted as wrong. Everything that they thought of as wrong, the new culture thought of as right. It was absolutely uh, opposed to everything that they stood for. But what's interesting when you read the book of Daniel is that you see that Daniel and a few of his friends figured out a way to live in that pagan world, to live in that world where everything was opposed to what they thought was true and, uh, and, and valuable. They figured out a way to live in that world such that they could bring honor to God and safeguard their Christian roots. And so what I want us to do over the next few weeks is just to take a close look at how Daniel did this. 
I want us to see how he faced some of these obstacles because you and I face the same obstacles. I, I want us to see how he dealt with a world that thought about things differently than him because we do the same thing. And as we see how he did this and how his friends did this, I think we're going to learn uh, better how to live, raise a family, and honor Christ in the world where we live. And so today we're going to start in Daniel chapter one. I want to do something uh, here in 2018 that uh, I don't, perhaps you've done before. I'm not sure. Uh, but, but I want us to do this for this year. I want us, when we read the scripture at the beginning of the message, I'm going to ask everybody to stand. Now don't stand yet. We'll do it in a moment. Uh, this is not something that uh, the Bible says that you have to do. There's, there's biblical precedent for this in, in two or three places. But what I want us to do this year is I just want us to give special honor uh, to God's word as the infallible, uh, reliable word from God. And I think one of the best ways to do that is for us just to stand as we initially read God's word in our message time. So let me ask you to do that. If you'll stand, and we're going to be in Daniel chapter 1. As I said, if you're using one of the Bibles in the rack in front of you, it's page 782. And I want to read beginning in verse 3. It says, the king ordered Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the Israelites from the royal family and from nobility. Young men without any physical defect, good looking, suitable for instruction in all wisdom, knowledge, perceptive and capable of serving in the king's palace. And he was to teach them the Chaldean language and literature. The king assigned them daily provisions from the royal food and from the wine that he drank. And they were to be trained for three years. And at the end of that time, they were to attend the king. And so these, uh, these chosen Hebrew teenagers, really, were put in this three-year university training in order to become not Hebrews, but to become Babylonians. Now look at verse 6. Among them from the Judahites were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief eunuch gave them names, different names. He gave the name Belshazzar to Daniel, Shadrach to Hananiah, Meshach to Mishael, and Abednego to Azariah. And then notice verse 8. Daniel determined that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. And so he asked permission from the chief eunuch not to defile himself. May God add blessings to the reading of his word and you may be seated. So what is happening here is the king of Babylon is trying to turn these Hebrew young men into Babylonian young men. He's trying to change them really through osmosis. And so he's, he's changed their names. He's changed their location. He's changed their language. He's changed their literature. And, and now just as the, the final piece of this transformation, he's, he's wanting to change their food. And by changing their food, he wants to change their social arrangement. A little bit at a time, what, uh, what the king is trying to do is to turn these young men into Babylonians. And, and he knew it wouldn't happen overnight. That's why it's a three-year program. And, and his strategy was if, if somehow we could just take the, these Hebrew young men and we could just expose them to enough of Babylonian culture, a little bit at a time, this culture will work its way into the lives of the Hebrews 
And in three years, they'll all be Babylonians. I mean, their Hebrew ancestry will be gone. And they will, they will truly be Babylonians a little bit at a time, over three years. That was his, uh, his, his strategy. Now, the reason that's important is because that's exactly what happens to us. You see, the Bible calls us strangers and aliens, but the truth is we have been so immersed in this pagan culture that, that for the most part, we're not strangers and aliens. No, we're earthly. We're worldly. We have a little bit at a time shed our Christian heritage, if we had one, our Christian worldview that we should get from God's word, and we have become so worldly in the way we act, in the way we think, in the things that we say. See, little bit at a time, the same thing that the king was trying to do to these Hebrews, to these Hebrew young men, the world is doing to us. And the world is doing to our children because they're constantly exposed to the things of the world. Little bit at a time, they're becoming Babylonians. We're all becoming Babylonians. The Bible says that the world, in Romans chapter 12, seeks to conform us to itself. Conform us, mold us into its shape, cause us to think in worldly ways, cause us to, to laugh at worldly jokes, cause call, us to, to say worldly things, to have worldly values. A little bit at a time, that's happening to us. But Daniel and his three friends said no. They said no. Look, look back at verse 8, if you will. Daniel determined that he would not defile himself with the king's food and the king's wine. Now, what I, what I want to do is to show you three things that we can learn from verse 8, from Daniel's resolution, his declaration not to defile himself. I want to show you three things we can learn from that uh, that'll help us to live in this pagan world, to raise children, to have godly marriages in this pagan world. Three things that we need to do if we're going to say with Daniel, I will not defile myself. Number one, we must recognize the danger. If we're gonna live in this, uh, in this world that opposes Christ, we must recognize the danger. That's what Daniel did. It says in verse eight that he resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food. So he recognized that there was some danger in the king's food. Now, what was the danger? What was wrong with eating the king's food and drinking the king's wine? Well, the Bible doesn't tell us explicitly. And I, I read a bunch of commentaries this week, and everybody seemed to have their own opinion. Uh, some suggested that uh, it was forbidden for dietary reasons that the king's food was ceremonially unclean. Uh, some disagreed with that and said, no, it's, it, it was forbidden because of religious reasons, that the king's food had been offered to some pagan God. Some people said, no, it was forbidden because of symbolic reasons that to eat the king's food equaled pledging your allegiance to the king. Now, we don't know if any of those are the case, but we know this, that Daniel and his three friends saw the king's food as something that would defile them, to pollute them. And so they recognized that there is a danger in what the world uh, what their world was trying to get them to do. Now, I looked up that word defile and spent some time studying that this week. If you look at it in the original language and you see how that word was used in other places in scripture, it'll really help you understand what it means. I found over in Isaiah 63, 3, that the word was used 
to describe a garment that had been stained by blood. If you ever gotten blood on a white t-shirt or something and you just couldn't get it out, it just left a permanent stain, well, that's this word defile. The garment is defiled. And that's what, uh, that, that's what Daniel was talking about when he said, the, the food, we recognize it will defile us. Another place that same word is used is in Malachi 1, where, where it's used to refer to rotting fruit. You know, when fruit rots, you can't unrot it, right? You can't take a rotten apple and fix it up and make it unrotted. No, no, when it's, when it's rotted, it's defiled, it's polluted. And so and that's the word that he's using here. He recognized the danger. He understood that if he continued to allow this Babylonian influence into his life, that it was going to pollute him. It was going to stain him. It was going to rot him from the inside. And see, the first thing we've got to do, if we're going to live in this uh, world that opposes crisis, we've got to recognize the dangers that are around us. And, and that's hard to do. That's very hard to do. In fact, most of the Hebrew young men in Daniel chapter one never saw it. What are some of the reasons why it's hard to recognize the dangers, uh, the dangerous influences that are in our lives? I, well, I think first of all is because sin is always presented in the best light. Do you know that? The food that Daniel was uh, told to eat, I'm sure, was delicious food. I mean, it was the king's food. It was filet mignon and lobster and Bernays sauce and, and good stuff, right? There wasn't any cauliflower in it. It was just absolutely <laughs> delicious food. And see, when, when sin is presented to us, this influence, this worldly influence, it's, it's never presented as something that's negative. It's always presented as something that's good. I mean, you watch, a, you watch a sitcom that's about nothing but sin, but it appeals to us because it makes us laugh. We, we, we have these influences around us, but we've got to recognize that they're always presented in the best light. The hook beneath the bait is always carefully hidden. The second reason it's difficult to recognize the danger is because damage the damage is often unseen until it is too late. So when these influences do damage to our lives, oftentimes we don't see the damage until it's too late to do anything about it. I, I know one time I was in the hospital or visiting the hospital and I noticed that, and I, I bet we have some people here that uh, wear these every week, uh, but one of, the, one of the medical professionals had a, had a clip on uh, her shirts and I asked her what that was. It was a little plastic, piece of plastic on her shirt. And uh, I, I said, well, what, what exactly is that? And she said uh, that it was a radiation detector. And uh, I don't know a lot about this, but the way she described it, best I could remember, she said, you know, I wear this when, I, when I'm working and when I'm doing x-rays and those kinds of things. And then I don't remember what she said, once a week or once a month or once a quarter or something. Uh, we turn these things in and, and they look at them or they uh, analyze them in some way and they can tell if we've been exposed to an unhealthy level of radiation, which would mean that you know we weren't doing what we're supposed to do or some piece of equipment was malfunctioning. And so what this does is it detects dangerous radiation. She said, you can't see radiation, you can't feel the radiation, it is a hidden thing. It's an invisible thing. But this will tell people whether or not we're being exposed to an unhealthy level of radiation. 
So now let's just think about that. That radiation is hidden, it's secret until what? Until it's bad, right? I mean, if you can tell that you've gotten too much radiation, I mean, if you can just tell, if you can feel it, I mean, you're way down the road. I mean, it's too late. I mean, I don't know all the medical stuff that they can do, but if, if you can feel that you've had too much radiation, listen, you're in, you're in a world of trouble. No, radiation poison is hidden until it is too late. Listen, oftentimes these sinful influences, we don't recognize the problem in them until it has absolutely changed the way we think and changed the way we look at things. And then it's almost too late. Let me tell you something that happened just yesterday. And if you listen carefully, I, I, I'm sort of nervous about sharing the story that somebody will draw a wrong conclusion. But, uh, but yesterday, me and my wife and my, and my girls were all in the kitchen last night, in fact, and we were preparing dinner. And the television was on in the background. I think it was on Fox News or something. Uh, nobody was really paying any attention to it. And we were all talking and I was grilling, so I was in and out. And, um, but I caught myself. Um, I, I had stood there and I had watched nearly an entire television commercial from beginning to end. I mean, nobody noticed. I'm sure nobody, none of my family noticed. And I wasn't lusting, okay? Please hear that. I'm not confessing to you that this morning. But, it, but I was captivated. It was a commercial about some sort of diet shake. And it just showed image after image of uh, scantily clad women in bathing suits. I mean, you've, I'm sure you've seen the commercial. I mean, it's burned into your mind, right? Some of you can see it right now. And so I, I've, I've, I've recognized at the end of the commercial, I had just paused and I have no interest in a diet shake, okay? You can look at me and tell I have never had a diet shake. <laughs> and so I wasn't interested in the product, uh, but I just, I just stood there and I watched that entire commercial. Now, is that, is that harmful? Did that cause some sort of damage? Well, I mean, you would think no. I mean, I, like, like I said, I wasn't lusting after those women, but, but you know, I think, it's, I think it's one of those things where the damage is invisible until it's too late. You see, it's, it's after you see a thousand of those commercials that, that you begin to expect that that's what all women should look like. It's when you see a thousand of those commercials that all of a sudden, People are disappointed in their spouse because they don't look like the people on the diet shake commercials. It, it's after you watch a thousand of those that you're no longer upset if your daughter's dressed like that. It, you see, the damage is, is, is hidden until you are completely corrupted, until you have been conformed uh, to, the, to the world. Uh, I've had uh, the privilege, that's probably not the right word, but I've had the the experience of uh, sitting down in pre-marriage counseling, talking to a couple just about to get married and hear them say of the other person, um, I, I, could, I could never love another. I will, I, I will, my eyes will always be captivated by you. And then to sit down with that same couple post-marriage counseling and hear the man or the woman say, you know, he or she just doesn't satisfy me any longer. And you wonder how, how did they go from, I, I will never love another to, I'm not satisfied anymore. Well, see, it's the influence of the world 
that is invisible until it is too late. Uh, so we, um, we get up in the morning and we listen to these raunchy television, radio shows, uh, or, and you know some of this is confession as much as anything, we watch sitcoms that, uh, that they would never show on the television sets in heaven. And we think that um, there is no damage. And it turns out there was. It just was invisible until it was too late. You know, another reason why it's hard sometimes to, uh, to, to recognize the danger, this is similar, but the damage is often so gradual that there seems to be no urgency. Sometimes we recognize that there is damage happening, but we think it's so small. Our assessment of it is that it's so minor that it's, it's no big deal. I, I remember I was in China several years ago, and the pollution in the cities in China is just terrible. And everybody knows it's terrible. But it's, it, it's not until you recognize that the people in the cities in China die 20 years earlier than the people out in the countryside in China that you recognize that, that this little bit of damage that's happening every time you take a deep breath uh, in the city of Guangzhou, China, it, it, it's not until you recognize that all of those little measurements of danger certainly add up that you, that you realize such a that is such a terrible thing. So it's hard to recognize the danger because sometimes it is so gradual that we just dismiss it. So, um, some people read a romance novel every week and uh, they think, you know, this probably will not be on the bookshelf at the library in heaven, but that the damage is very minuscule. Uh, people will um, flip through a Cosmo every month, or people, men will watch an episode of Game of Thrones, and we know that those things are sin, but we think that the damage is so small that it won't matter until our minds are corrupted. Another reason why we, we, it's hard to see, to recognize the danger is because sometimes others don't recognize the danger. And so we don't know how many Hebrew young men they brought to this university experience, uh, but probably a few hundred, right? And only four out of a few hundred recognize there's a problem. Sometimes we dismiss the influence of the world because we think, you know, everybody else is doing it. You know, everybody else is, is, is watching the same things, listening to the same things, reading the same things, going to the same places. Well, how bad could it be? Another reason why it's hard sometimes to recognize the danger is we just think a certain level of defilement is okay. It's because we don't understand the holiness of God. It's because we don't understand the cumulative nature of, uh, of the defilement. But listen, if, if, we're gonna, if we're gonna live in this world, we can't change the world, not overnight. We, we can't, we, 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 this is going, you're gonna live in a pagan world. If we're gonna do this successfully, we must recognize the danger. We're living in enemy territory. We're walking through minefields. We've gotta recognize that. The second thing, if we're gonna live in this world is, is we've gotta drive a stake in the ground. Drive a stake in the ground. Now, if you look back at verse 8, it says, Daniel determined that he would not defile himself. Now, that word determined, it, I looked it up in several Bible translations. In some Bible translations, it says that he resolved 
He made it his New Year's resolution, right? In, in some Bible translations, it says it may, he made up his mind. In some, it says he purposed in his heart. Uh, it, it's actually a, an idiom in Hebrew. It's a, it's a sentence or a phrase that meant something in their culture that might not translate to ours. If my Hebrew is, is decent, it says this. He said, I placed above the heart which is his. I didn't mean much to us, but let me give it to you in an English idiom. Here's what he did. He drove a stake in the ground. Well, what Daniel did when it says he, he resolved or he, he determined not to defile himself, he drove a stake in the ground. He said, at this point, I will not cross this line. I understand that other people will cross the line. I understand that other people will scoff at my convictions. I understand that this is against everything that my culture stands for, but I will not cross this line. And Daniel drove a stake in the ground and he says, this is it. This is the limit. This is the boundary. And I will not live on the other side of this boundary. You know, if we're going to live in this, in this pagan world, there are going to have to be some places where you and I say, there, I'm going to drive a stake. I'm not going to go on the other side of that boundary. I'm not going to live the way the world wants me to live in that area. There, I will drive my stake and it will be firm in the ground. Can I tell you some places that maybe we need to drive a stake? There's no maybe, some places we need to drive a stake. I think one of the biggest ones is in the area of pornography. You know, I've been in Nacogdoches long enough to know this. Pornography is a big problem in Nacogdoches. P pornography is a big problem among people who attend the First Baptist Church of Nacogdoches. And it's a problem from people who are frighteningly young to people who are amazingly old. Age seems to have little or nothing to do with this. It's a problem. And it is the world pouring its poison into our lives and into our families and our marriages and our children. Listen, we, we I think, sometimes just assume that because we are in the buckle of the Bible belt that these kind of things aren't the case. But they are. And they have been for a long time. Uh, about 20, 21, 22 years ago, uh, I lived in Louisville, Mississippi, and if there's a sister city to Nacogdoches in the state of Mississippi, it's Louisville. I mean, Bible Belt, just as, uh, uh, just as Bible as you can get. Everybody went to church, everybody, you know, dressed up nice and spoke uh, well of Christ. Uh, but I, uh, I needed a side job while I was there. I was pastoring a church, but I needed a job to help take care of my financial needs. And so I started uh, an internet service provider. Now, some of you are old enough to remember this, some of you are not, but there was a time when every city had its own internet company. And, and that's how you got the internet. You bought it from that, that company. Well, I owned the internet service provider for Louisville, Mississippi for a few years. And as a result, this may scare some of you, as a result, I knew what everybody in Louisville looked at on the internet. Now, that's not a good thing for a pastor to know. <laughs> 
somebody knows everything you look at on the internet. Now they may have a little, a little better precautions than you know, the big giant internet companies today, but maybe they don't, I don't know. I'm not uh, saying one way or the other, but, but there weren't any secrets. Um, I mean, I kept secrets, but uh, I knew what everybody looked at in Louisville, Mississippi. I would have to refresh the DNS tables once a month. If you're a computer guy, you'll know what that is. And in doing so, I could, uh, I could see how those DNS uh, entries were tied to uh, user accounts, and uh, it was uh, unmistakable. And let me tell you, 20-something years ago, in the Bible Belt of the Bible Belt, half the traffic on the internet in Louisville, Mississippi, was pornography. And things haven't changed for the better at all. Listen. Men and women, this is one of the areas where we need to drive a stake in the ground. And we need to say that the world is not going to pour its poison into my life or into my family. We've got to say that I will not live on the other side of the boundary of pornography. I think we need to do the same thing with certain movies. Uh, somebody told me this last week that a movie theater in town was spending an entire day, I don't know if it was last week or this next week, um, playing the Fifty Shades movies. It may have been the Lufkin Theater. Um, an entire day doing that. Now listen, most of the people who go to those movies will be in church the next Sunday. And uh, so, you know, some of you may have just written that down. Hey, did you know that was going on? We need to find out what day that was. Listen, I, I, I mean, it's obvious who goes to those movies. But, but if we're going to live in a world, if we're going to successfully live for Christ and honor the Lord in a world that is opposed to Christ, we're going to have to drive some stakes in the ground and say, I'm just not going to do that. There are certain television shows we don't need to watch. There are certain books we don't need to read, magazines, places, shopping sites. Now, somebody will say, well, that's legalism, Pastor. That's just legalism. You're giving us a bunch of rules. That's legalism. No. Legalism is when we try to hold somebody to a standard that's not in the Bible. But listen, the Bible does forbid these kinds of things, clearly forbids these kinds of things. It's not legalism to tell somebody not to sweeten their tea with rat poison. I mean, it's, uh, it, what, what it is is Psalm 1-1. Listen to the Psalm 1-1. Happy is the one who does not walk in the advice of the wicked or stand in the pathway of sinners or sit in the company of mockers. The Bible says we need to drive a stake in the ground and separate ourselves. I, uh, I bought a couple of smaller stakes when I went and bought this one this week. Um, and I'm going to put one of them in my dressing area uh, where I get dressed every morning. I'm going to put the other one where I read my Bible every morning because I want to look at this stake and I want to be reminded that there are some areas in my life where under the direction of the Holy Spirit, I have driven a stake in the ground and I will not cross that barrier. I want to be Daniel in my world. I want to say I have determined that I will not defile myself in that area. Every one of us here, there's somewhere you need to drive a stake in the ground in your life. Now, the third thing, very quickly, is uh, if, if we're going to live in this Christian, in this pagan world, we're going to have to take some practical steps. If you look back at Daniel chapter 1, verse 12, it's interesting to see how Daniel didn't just say, I will not eat the food. Daniel, he had some practical steps. It says in verse 12, uh, he's speaking to the, uh, the person who's in charge. 
He says, please test your servant for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. And then examine our appearance and the appearance of the young men who are eating the king's food and deal with your servants based on what you see. See, Daniel had this whole plan worked out. He didn't just say no. He said, I've got a plan. Daniel just didn't make an emotional decision. He didn't just take a shot in the dark at spiritual maturity. It wasn't just a hope and a prayer. Daniel had a plan. So we need to drive a stake in the ground and say, I will not go on the other side of that boundary. But we also need to have a plan of what's going to happen when we are tempted. You know, the Bible gives precedent for that. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says, with temptation, with every temptation, that God will provide a way out so that you may bear up under it. The Bible says when we're tempted, God will always provide a path. But in order for us to take advantage of that path, we need to have a plan. Here's what I'm going to do. I noticed just before I walked out of my study this morning, uh, I've seen it a thousand times, but it, I, I just recognized it for the first time this morning. Right next to the door as I leave my study is a map, a hand-drawn map of the church that shows you where to go if the church is on fire, okay? So if the church is on fire, you just sit here. I'm going to go get the map. <laughs> I'll come back and tell you where to go. And, and so it's, it's a plan. It's a plan to get out of the building. Well, the Bible says that God will always provide a way out in the face of temptation, but we have to have a plan to take advantage of that. So let me just very quickly give you the elements of a good plan. And, and, and so I mean, this is a whole nother sermon, I know, but, but I, I want to be practical as we go through this. So let me give you some elements of a good plan. Number one, you need to be in Christ. You need to be in Christ. In order for you to overcome the temptations that are, are just inherent in living in this, um, in this pagan world, you have to know that you are in Christ, meaning that sin has no dominion over you. I can say no to temptation because I am in Christ. He has conquered the tempter uh, for me. I can say no. It, it means that there's no condemnation when I fail. It's not that when I, when I sin that God just writes me off or turns his back on me or God is separated from me. No, because I am in Christ, I have perfect relationship with Jesus. And so, so I am in Christ. We fight from victory to victory. The, 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 the sanctifying work of God, meaning that God is, God is working on us to help us to live a holy life, little bit at a time. We grow some every day. We need to know that we're in Christ. The strength to say no comes from your relationship with, with Jesus. Number two, you need to identify your weaknesses. You need to know... Um, you need to know what areas in your life uh, are areas where you're more susceptible to sin. Uh, there are some areas uh, that, that, uh, that I've just, um, I mean, not that I could never fall, but there are some areas that I just don't experience the temptation that other people experience. But there are some areas that I know I'm weak in. I know that I've got to be careful about, that I, I know I've got to watch my guard. And so you need to know what those areas are in your life. Number three, you need to set firm boundaries. So we've really spoken of these already. You need to recognize the danger. You know, that was the first point. Identify your weakness. Set firm boundaries. We need to drive a stake. And then the, 
the fourth thing. You need to know what your triggers are. You need to know the things in your life that in the past have led you to, to giving in to that temptation. And, and you know, the temptation will be different for everybody. But you need to figure out what are the triggers that lead you to have those conversations that you shouldn't have, to look at those things that you shouldn't look at. What are the triggers? And then you need to separate yourself from those triggers. I love Job 31.1, where Job said, I have made a covenant with my eyes. How then can I look at a young woman? Uh, Job said, I've, I've made... I've, I've sort of made a deal with my eyes. This is weird, isn't it? But, it? but it's helpful. He says, I've made a deal with my eyes that I will not look at a woman uh, in any kind of lustful way. Because Job knew that one thing leads to another thing. Job knew that little bit at a time, almost imperceptibly, that his heart could be corrupted. He says, so I, I, have, I have made a covenant, a, a contract with my eyes. Number six, you need accountability. The Bible teaches us that the Christian life is to be lived together. Uh, you ought to tell somebody what your weak area is. You ought to ask somebody to pray for you. You ought to ask somebody to have a conversation with you about those things. And then number, I don't want to leave one out here. Number seven is honest prayer. You need to tell God, honestly, God, I'm struggling with this. I have a weak area in this. I failed in this before and you know, and I need your help. And then you, and then Bible study, uh, uh, number eight is Bible study. We, of course, the strength of God is often given to us through the reading and the study of his word. Listen to Romans 12 too. He says, don't be conformed to this age. That means don't, don't become Babylonians. Don't let the world put you into its shape, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. What how is your mind renewed? It is renewed by the reading and study of the Word of God. I read a moment ago Psalm 1-1, uh, happy is the man who does not walk in the advice of the wicked, stand in the pathway of sinners, or sit in the company of mockers. So it's talking about the person who doesn't expose himself to, the, to these worldly influences. But it goes on to say this in the next verse, instead... So instead of exposing yourself to Game of Thrones or your, your weekly romance novel, he, he says instead his delight is in the Lord's instruction and he meditates on it day and night. He said don't, let, don't feast on the worldly influences, feast on God's word. And then in the next verse he says he is like a tree planted b beside flowing streams that bears its fruit in season. Let live a life filled with the sweet fruit from the Lord because you've invested your life in God's word, not given over to the influences of the world. Now, we, we can't quit by, without seeing this. So look in your Bible. I want everybody to see this. It's the end of the story. Now, next week we'll talk about some more stories. There's six, six things here that Daniel does, and we'll look at them over the next few weeks. But what happens? Now, this, what's interesting about this is you're going to see this in almost every one of these, um, every one of these um, episodes, really, in Daniel's life. Next week, we're going to talk about um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and the fiery furnace. And, and uh, the next week, we're going to talk about uh, the lion's den. And, and, and you're going to see this pattern over and over. But I want you to see it here. Verse 17, 
It says, God gave these four young men knowledge and understanding in every kind of literature and wisdom. Daniel also understood visions and dreams of every kind. And at the end of the time the kings had said to present them, the chief eunuch presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king interviewed them, and among all of them, no one was found equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they began to attend the king. In every matter of wisdom and understanding that the king consulted them about, he found them 10 times better than all the magicians and mediums in his entire kingdom. Look, at the end of this three years, there was a difference between these four young men and everybody else. Not just the other Hebrew, but among everybody in the entire kingdom. And if you know the rest of the story of Daniel, you know that one of the things that happens repeatedly is that a ruler will have a dream that he needs interpreted. And nobody will be able to figure it out until what happens? Daniel comes on the scene and he tells the ruler the dream and the interpretation to the dream. Over and over that happens in the book. How did that happen? Well, he tells us right here. Now listen to this. He tells us that because these four men, and especially Daniel, refused to allow the influences of the world, the Babylonian world, to come into their lives, that God honored that and made them 10 times smarter and more fruitful than everybody else in the kingdom. Isn't that amazing? What, listen, if, if you will, if you will drive some stakes in the ground and you will hold back the influences, the Babylonian influences of the world, God will honor that in your life and the lives of your family and your children and your grandchildren in significant ways. Do you know what a biography is? Everybody does, I know. A biography is a book that is written after a person has died, usually, or after they have lived their life, at least the part that's in the biography, to tell the story of how they lived, right? So somebody dies or somebody gets very old and they write a biography that looks backwards. That, that's, the point of, that's the point of a biography. It looks backwards, right? Daniel is the first person to write a biography forward. See, Daniel does something in Daniel chapter one that determines the story for the rest of his days. Isn't that interesting? Because Daniel held back the influence of the world in Daniel 1, so we will see naturally in Daniel 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, we're gonna see that play out in his life. Now, this message is for old people and young people, right? But let me talk to young people. I, I regret that the college students aren't back, but I think about my three daughters. So let me just preach to my three daughters a minute. You just listen on. You live in a pagan world. The way the world thinks is different than the way you think. The way the world evaluates what's right and wrong is different. The way the world defines marriage, everything is different. A little bit at a time, the world is going to try to get you to think like they think. And it'll happen just by you being exposed to that. But you have a choice. 
You can write your biography before you live your life. If you will determine that I will drive some stakes in the ground and I will not eat of the king's food, I will not let the world's influence in my life in certain ways because, when, because the Bible says when that's true, that God's honor will always follow. Just with your head bowed and eyes closed for a moment. See, this message took a lot of soul searching on my part. A lot of soul searching. I don't know, maybe that doesn't make me qualified to be a pastor, but I'm just telling you the truth. You know, in every single one of us, the world is seeking to have influence in our lives by what we see, what we do, who we talk to, what we read, what we look at. And so as I was preparing this message, the Lord just highlighted some things in my life. See, here's where the world is seeping in over here. And here's where the world's thinking is seeping in over here. Some of mine was just, was money and some, just different things. But the, but the Lord highlighted some areas in my life. And I believe the Holy Spirit challenged me to drive some stakes in the ground. And I, my prayer is that that's happening for all of us right now. You know, our altar is gonna be open. There'll be people standing here in the front. I invite you to come. And you can do this where you stand. But I only invite some of you, if you just be bold enough to come up here and sit on this first pew a minute or kneel at this altar for a moment, the people around you will be glad to let you out. And just come and say, Lord, I heard you. And I'm driving some stakes in the ground. And here's where they're going to land. I want to write the rest of my biography now. Because I want my life to count for your honor and glory. Father, thank you for your conviction and for your word. Now help us to follow you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together as we respond to the Lord.